This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your regular podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we're looking at the stories of working women at English heritage sites through the ages. Throughout history, women's work has often been undervalued and marginalised due to the unequal power relations between the sexes. One consequence of this is that very few records of the experience of individual women workers have survived, and official records are often silent about the work women were doing. One area of work where women came to dominate is in domestic service, but it wasn't always this way. With us to trace the history of women who worked in domestic service from the Middle Ages to the 20th century are senior properties historian Dr Megan Leyland and properties historian's team leader Dr Andrew Han. Hello. Hello. Hi. So let's start off with Megan then and we're going to go back in time to the medieval household. What do we know about the roles of women in the medieval times in the home? Well, in the medieval and early modern period, most grand households were composed primarily of male servants and retainers. And actually, there were very few women who worked as servants in those households, really few women beyond attendants of the lady of the house, chamber women and those attached to the nursery. You might find other women who perform particular tasks quite often actually away from the home on a more casual basis, such as washing or brewing. And this is in part a product of what the medieval household did and how it functioned as a political economic unit as a base of sort of military power men could be called upon in the household to protect it and in some ways that kind of composition and function of the household excluded women to a degree in those sort of service roles and you also see fear of women in the household in this period the idea that they might distract the many single men who might have been there and even henry the 6th is said to have believed women of all kinds should be kept out of the household that's very interesting so a very male dominated sphere then in the home in the castle in that sort of setting yeah so predominantly male-dominated household and men sort of in these hierarchies and ranks of layers of service, many of whom at the sort of high ranks of service were gentlemen in their own right um, and had servants in their own right who would be served by servants. But yes, few women in comparison to the later periods. Right. So when do we start to find more examples of female servants working in noble houses? Well, from as early as the mid-1500s, there does appear to be more women coming into noble households, undertaking sort of low-status, more menial work. And although large households at the beginning of the 1600s were still overwhelmingly male, with men holding the most senior roles, as the century progressed, you start to see women becoming more commonplace and their numbers increasing. Okay, let's um, move forward a little bit quicker through time then. The centuries are just zipping behind us and we're into the sort of 17th century now, so the 1600s. When do we start to see a shift in female roles in this period? The 1600s, the 17th century is a really important century in terms of increasing numbers of women. You see wider changes to households in the time. They're declining in number. You're seeing less sort of well-born men going into service and their positions being replaced by the lowest status men or indeed women. So people such as the clerk of the kitchen might become a female 
housekeeper and you're starting to see more specialised roles beginning to emerge which are associated more with the domestic side of a household as opposed to perhaps some of those grander ambitions that we talked about for the medieval period. And to add to that, hiring women was cheaper. So you see this increase of women in a sort of slowly becoming sort of more service class of people working in these households in the 17th century. I've heard of weeding women as well. Is, is that a job that they would have been doing? Weeding in the garden and, and sort of working in the kitchen gardens of various noble houses? Yeah, so you don't tend to find too many women in the gardens, but the women that we perhaps do know a bit about who did work in them were perhaps some of the lowest paid women there. They certainly wouldn't have been on the same salaries as the head gardeners of the time. And we know about some weeding women at Kirby Hall from a contract in the 1680s, which is of a a male head gardener, John Simpson, and in it, it specifies that he is to contract people to work in the garden. And in that contract, he had to hire workmen and weeders. Now, we can't be 100% certain, it doesn't say women weeders, but it's really likely that these were probably women. And they were tasked with quite often backbreaking and monotonous work of keeping your gardens weed free, it's in the name, but also things like pest control, fruit gathering, cleaning and cooking for the gardeners. And so in terms of women in the households who worked in the garden, they're actually really some of the very few and it offered an important working opportunity for lower class women who actually had very few options to work in other employment at the time. And that was at Kirby Hall. Just remind us where Kirby Hall is. Yes, yeah, so Kirby Hall's in Northamptonshire. Another English heritage site that would have had a large household during the 17th century is Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire. We've covered this in a previous episode as well, home to William and Margaret Cavendish, who uh, entertained with lavish parties, as we know. What do we know about the staff, though, who worked under them? Yeah, so there's a few interesting little hints about the staff in the Cavendish household. I think we've spoken about before, you've got to remember that they also are nearby Welbeck, where a lot of the administration of the estate and a lot of the running of their homes would have been, and Bolsover being sort of a, a retreat, an occasional residence as well. So if we look at the Cavendish household as a whole, you do see little tidbits and as we've spoken about before, the Cavendishes were great literary minds. And some interesting references to female servants in the Cavendish household comes from one of William Cavendish's daughter's literary works, and she was called Jane. And she does a couple of poetries called On a Chambermaid, addressed to Mary and Bess, chambermaids in the Cavendish household. And her one of Bess sort of begins... Thou lovely best that art so plump and young, and describes her as looks most secrets sure, so good at keeping secrets trusted. Mm. And this chambermaid is even seems a reader of Jane's works. So effectively, we have a chambermaid working for a literary lady of the house, and they both seem to enjoy poetry by the sounds of things. And obviously, a cha- chambermaid is kind of like, um, well, what you'd have even in a hotel today. Yeah, so in the 17th century, what's really interesting is we start getting publications about what these different roles that women could undertake were. And so say we take for an example one which was penned under the name of Hannah Wally, the gentlewoman's companion. It was actually potentially an unauthorised version of one of her manuscripts. It gives us some indication of what the roles of a chambermaid might have been in that period in the 1670s when she was writing and she actually sets out what you would need to be able to do 
and sort of the specifications of someone who might be in that role as someone who can do washing and starching, who can do mending and needlework, who can prepare things such as sauces, who might clean their mistress's chamber and other rooms, depending on the other servants there, buy foodstuffs, and basically, as she puts, divest your mistress from all the care you can. So it could be quite a mixed role and actually the chambermaid was one of the sort of the higher up maids in that ranking of all the different maids associated with different emphasis in their work. Do we have any other examples where household staff played an influential role? Yes so by the end of the 1600s we see the establishment of these sort of more senior female domestic servants as well as the sort of chambermaids and lower and the hierarchy domestic servants and One of them that you see becoming quite established is the idea of a a governess. Now, they kind of flitter somewhere between being part of the family and the sort of emerging service class. They're quite often high status, high born women, which could have a profound impact on the upbringing of children within the noble household. And there's actually just this really beautiful portrait, which I think exemplifies how important these women could be in the lives of the children that they cared for and it's a portrait of Lady Anne Clifford it's actually a a triptych so made of three parts which she commissioned and in one part of it it shows Anne Clifford as a child about 15 and Anne Clifford is associated with a few of our sites Bruff and Brown Castle which I think we've spoken about on a podcast Mm -hmm. before that's right and in the background of this section of her aged 15 you can see a mini portrait within the portrait of her tutor Samuel Daniel and then also of her governess Mrs Anne Taylor and we know who it is because there's an inscription underneath and she's depicted in a sort of black cap tied under her chin And it says, governess to this young lady, a religious and good woman and daughter to Mr. Cholmley. And I think that is kind of testament to how important these women could be in the upbringing of sort of noble members of the household. And and they're surrounded by books and all the things that this governess would have taught her, along with this tutor as well, Samuel Daniel. So a really interesting visual representation of a lady in service in the 17th century. So it sounds as though that from the chambermaids of the 1600s to the governesses of the 1600s, the opportunities for women in work in the domestic sphere are advancing. The governess being an extra layer of responsibility and closer to your boss effectively. And you also have this sort of extra job of looking after the lady's children. So there's quite a lot of uh, responsibility there. Yeah, and I think... You know, that's one of the big changes from the medieval household. Women are increasing in prevalence across the different layers of service within a hierarchical household. Okay, well, let's move forward through time a little bit further into the 18th century, which is the 1700s, of course. How did the opportunities available to women continue to evolve during this period of history? So in the 18th century, you see this sort of dominance of more senior figures within the household and this increasing of the number of roles that you see coming through specialised roles and you get the increasingly essential figure of the housekeeper who would take on some of the management duties associated traditionally perhaps with the lady of the house. You might also start seeing female cooks as well as the whole series of maids that we've talked about and you also see a decline perhaps in well-born attendants such as ladies in waiting and you might instead find ladies maids instead. 
One English heritage property that uh, would have been in its pomp during this period is Marble Hill in London. Uh, it's Henrietta Howard's home on the banks of the River Thames in Twickenham. Can you tell us about the records that we have of the female members of staff who worked at Marble Hill? Yes, yeah, so undoubtedly Marble Hill would have had a reasonable sized staff with it. It's, it's not an enormous house. It's a, a nice sort of boxed Palladian villa. And we don't have extensive records of the servants there, but as with a lot of these women, and indeed actually servants more generally in the early modern period, you might find little snippets of servants through often the eyes of the aristocratic owners or their records. So for Marble Hill, we find a Mrs. Susan in the correspondence of Alexander Pope writing to Henrietta Howard in 1726, mainly actually to congratulate her on the increase of her family because her cow had had a female calf at the time. Um, But we also hear about Mrs. Susan, who offered Pope and the others there wine upon the occasion. And as he put, how could he refuse it? And we might assume that this Mrs. Susan was perhaps a housekeeper, maybe also doing some of the cooking. And the date at which this letter was written is actually when Marble Hill is still in the process of being finished. So perhaps you wouldn't have your full complement of staff serving there. And in Henrietta Howard's will, there is a Susanna Graydon who was given a gift in Henrietta's house wills. This is sort of 30 years later. Could it be the same Mrs. Susan? We don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting, that one, because... It sounds like a meek woman. I can imagine her sort of curtsying and just saying, it's Mrs. Susan, it's Mrs. Susan. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting because the role of housekeeper could require an awful lot of organisational skill and we sometimes have accounts and things surviving for housekeepers of the time which might give you some more indications. We find some other hints in correspondence again to women caring for the children in these households. Henrietta had her niece and nephew and then her great niece there and you find her great niece mentioning showing a gift to her maid or her great niece saying old aunt and nurse teaching me how well as she puts it the graceful swim of the body and gentle motion of the arms in my dancing. So again, you find these little hints, but sometimes the challenge, depending on what documentation survives, is that you only get those hints. You might get a name, you might get a job description or a role, but filling out those bigger biographies can be at times very challenging in a sort of documentary culture, which perhaps doesn't privilege those lower class members of the household and and women as well. Do you think these people in service would when asked what is your name they'd give their christian name or do you think they would give their last name andrew have you got a sense of whether there was maybe a way of speaking to one another between the lady of the house the gentleman of the house and even the way that the servants interacted with one another was there a hierarchy in the way that they spoke yeah well i mean i think there is a sense that certainly when servants were speaking to each other that certainly the senior servants would expect to be called mrs Mrs. Crocombe or Mrs. Jones or Mrs. Smith, whatever, rather than by their first name, whereas some of the more junior servants might have been known by their first name. So you'd have Mabel or Elizabeth, whatever, when they were talking to the maids or the kitchen maids. And that was part of the whole hierarchy within the servant body itself, in terms of the senior woman servant asserting their their importance within the hierarchy by being addressed in a more formal way by the more junior servants. How the lady of the house would have addressed the senior servant, I suspect, 
she would maybe have called her by her first name because then there would have been a reversal of that hierarchy. The servant was a more junior partner to the lady of the house, so she may well have said, you know, sort of Avis or whatever when she was talking to her. It's difficult to know because it's very rare for women to actually mention servants by name in their diaries, whatever. It does happen sometimes, and I think when it does, they usually do use either their full name or their first name. So I suspect that's certainly what the case as it was in say, the 18th into the early 19th century. Mm. It's a tantalising mystery, isn't it, about how people would have spoken to each other? Because if the records aren't there, then it's quite hard to make a clear deduction. Um, Is it really difficult to find records from this period in the 18th century? The more personal records, the sort of diaries and personal accounts of servants themselves, in my experience, are very rare. I don't know whether Megan knows differently, but I certainly haven't come across very many of those at all. You get diaries of gentlewomen, but not of their servants. Yeah, I think you sort of quite often can guess a sense of the roles they might have undertaken, or the odd name. You might find wages, for example, in accounts, so you can look at the different structures and who was paid what. But in terms of these female servants recording their own history, that seems to come a bit later where you get them writing their own letters or diaries and you get a much fuller picture of the biographies of these individuals a much fuller picture of them as people not just of their role in service okay let's move through the uh, years again and we're gonna fast forward through to later in the georgian period i gather that this gradual increase in the number of female workers was further accelerated at the end of the 18th century by the introduction of, we all hate it, taxes. What can you tell us about this, Megan? There's a really interesting episode in the history of taxation, if there can indeed be an interesting episode in taxation. (laughs) There is. It is interesting. It tells us lots of fascinating things. And during the Georgian era, you get a lot of taxes on consumables being introduced to raise revenue to support the military during periods of almost constant warfare and colonial expansion on things such as carriages, silver, gold plate cards, and dice get playing and things like this, but also on people, on servants. So in 1777, a tax was introduced on all manservants, um, excluding those in husbandry and trade. So... This was, I don't think, overly popular at the time. And, you know, if you're already raising tax on, say, windows on a house or in a household, another unit you could go to is the people in the household. So it was it was a way of raising money and raising it on something which might be considered ornamental. You know, the powder on the hair of some of the higher status servants incurred an extra tax and things like this. So it was a way of raising funds through the lens of taxing essentially conspicuous consumption at the time and the idea that that a lot of these men were ornamental and not necessarily important essential labour. You've mentioned there the taxation on male servants but was there an equivalent tax on female servants? Well there wasn't initially but in 1785 the taxation was extended to cover maid servants and would continue to include women up until 1792. However, female servants were taxed at a much lower rate. So, for example, if you had a small household with three or four manservants, these were taxed at a rate of £1.10 shillings, whereas if you had maidservants, these were taxed at 10 shillings each. And it was a sliding scale depending how big your household was. This caused quite a lot of upset 
and ultimately some exemptions were made such as families who had a lot of children so you almost had an exemption to have some maids to help look after the family and ultimately it was repealed Mm. and I think that's really interesting that outrage against taxing maid servants because what does that say about the position which maid servants had at that time which female servants had in these households across the social scale we're talking about not just big aristocratic households here and you get an idea first of all about the numbers of women the records are not great but in 1791 we know that the tax on maids was paid by something like 90,000 families but it only actually brought in about 31,000 pounds so perhaps not the money maker that was hoped for but also the tax fell quite a lot on middling homes it raised questions about what was essential domestic work and not and arguments that actually women weren't ornamental in the work they performed in the household that they were doing productive labor it brought up questions about other opportunities which women had for working in the period so there are arguments that in introducing this tax women would lose their jobs and would be in a situation where they already had a narrowing range of employment options open to them. So it was repealed in 1792, but raises a whole series of interesting questions about the value placed on women workers and how present they were actually in households at the time. Yeah, I can understand how that was a double-edged sword, really. Whilst for the Treasury, it might have been quite beneficial to try and bring in extra cash, it was punishing the aristocracy, but it's also punishing the, the lower classes who needed the work in these um, noble house households. So it was, yeah. di- it was difficult, wasn't it? And I think it also brings to light sort of an interesting distinction about male servants in the household, which sort of became targets of your extravagant, it's extravagant and opulent, and they're not really working in a productive way and female servants who I think one person sort of said they're always employed in works of industry and management and they were sort of staple for want of a better word commodities because in many ways when you're taxing people like that they're being treated as commodities. Mm. Queen Victoria eventually comes to the throne of course and we're in the Victorian period now. Uh, Did the tax on male servants continue into her reign? Well, yes, the tax did. In fact, the taxes, first of all, in the beginning of the 19th century, in the sort of Napoleonic period, although the tax on female servants, as Megan was saying, had been repealed, the tax on male servants was actually increased in 1812 because of the cost of the Napoleonic Wars. And it actually got up to quite serious levels. If you had two male servants, they were being taxed at £7.13 each. So that's a lot of money being brought in at at that point. And although the tax was then reduced again in 1823 after the the war and its aftermath had, had ended, and then scaled back again in 1852, the tax on male servants wasn't finally repealed until 1889. So we're deep into the Victorian period when this tax ends. Hmm. Bearing in mind this taxation of both sexes over two reigns, effectively, what was the makeup of the workforce in the Victorian period? Was it more or less 50-50? Well, what was seen to do, actually, this tax on male servants was to really sort of tip the balance in favour of female servants even more so than had been the case in the in the earlier 18th century. So there are now households are composed primarily of women, and you'll find it's only really a few of the senior roles now held by men, roles like butler and valet, footman, whatever, head gardener, coachman. The majority of the roles within the household, so all the, most of the roles in the kitchen are held by women, and then you have all the housemaids and parlour maids and so forth. So you have a primarily female workforce in service by the, by the Victorian period. 
this female workforce, did it also include the governess that we talked about earlier in the 1600s? It certainly did. I mean, you had not only those junior roles like Megan was talking about, the sort of, you know, housemaids and kitchen maids, but you also had senior roles. You had still the governess, you had the housekeeper who were increasingly important within the household, but also quite often female cooks as well. So you were having quite a few women in quite senior roles who would have been on a par with the butler or the head gardener in terms of status. Were these jobs given out to women not just because of taxation, but perhaps also because they were willing to do the work for a lower fee? There is a sense of that as well, in that women generally, when they were doing the same role, were paid considerably less than their male counterparts. So so women were cheaper to have as servants. So you had a double whammy here in terms of women are not being taxed and also they're cheaper to hire as well. So you can see the reasoning behind that in a time certainly towards the later Victorian period where aristocratic households are finding their incomes being squeezed by increasing taxation elsewhere and also by falling farm rents because of things like the agricultural depression, that it makes sense to hire women who are cheaper to hire. Okay, I want to look at um, some famous roles and obviously one of the most famous ones which has been really well publicised by English Heritage is the historical real person of Mrs Avis Crocombe at Audley End House in Essex and we've done two episodes on that. Can you tell us about her role in the Victorian period? Was she well paid compared to the male counterparts of that period? We don't actually know her salary per se because we haven't got records of it in the account books, but we can, by sort of looking at other women cooks who were at Audley End in that similar period, for instance, we have another cook, Priscilla Conway, who was there in 1871, and we know that she was paid around £40, whereas her successor, who was a male French chef, John Merrer, he received 120 so that's a really big difference. He's been paid almost three times as much as she was. Now, Priscilla Conway was only 25. Avis is a little older in her early 40s, so there's a chance that Avis was maybe paid up to £50, but still, that's a lot, lot less than a male cook would have been paid. So you do get this sense of hierarchy, meaning that the French chef is much more highly sort of prized and seen as having a lot of prestige in a household. And if you were to employ what was described as a professed cook, that's a female cook who is professionally trained, she could expect to only get about half what the male chef would be paid and that is something that you find across country houses wherever you look and and if you look in advertisements for paid positions in country houses as, as cook or chef as well you find the same sort of thing it's very much a case of the male chef being remunerated far higher than a female cook one thing that can be said for sure is that these female cooks these professed cooks were just as well trained and just as proficient at the job as a male french chef would be i mean someone like avis crocombe she's been in service since she was in her mid-teens and and then she's worked up her way from kitchen maid in the household of john townsend viscount sydney who's lord chamberlain to queen victoria so a really important person and then she's moved from there to be a um, cook housekeeper so combining those two roles but working for a lower status household of a gentleman the proctor Beecham family in Langley Park in Norfolk. So she's done her apprenticeship and by the time she gets to Audley End, she's really at the peak of her career in her early 40s, having been in service for, you know, 25 years or so. And so she could probably do anything that a male chef could have done just as well. And of course, even though she was not paid as much as a French male chef or even an English one, 
she did actually leave something behind which was incredibly priceless. And if people don't know about this, this is one of the most fascinating things about Audley End House. And that is, of course, Andrew, tell us. She left us a fantastic manuscript receipt book, or effectively a cookbook, where she noted down all of the recipes that she had picked up over her working career. So she would have noted down details of any recipe that would particularly appeal to her in her cookbook as a, an aid memoir for future reference. And so you can sort of see her career developing through this cookbook and through the entries in it. There are some entries that relate to her period when she was at Audley End, and it actually says, you know, had this recipe from the Field magazine, which is a, a sort of a journal which was used by the aristocracy and often had like sort of recipes listed in it. Other ones had this from Lady Braybrook. Lady Braybrook would be sharing recipes with the cook and saying, can you cook this? So you really get a sense of the sorts of food that she was preparing for the family and the sorts of dishes that she cooked. Yes, it's a fantastic story. Can you tell us about other roles that um, would have been popular in the Victorian period? I gather the housekeeper was quite an important one as well. The housekeeper was, is a really important role in terms of, as Megan was saying earlier, managing the household. I mean, she, she was responsible for both being in charge of all the female servants in the house, but also she had the keys to the stores and was responsible for paying tradesmen's bills and making sure that the accounts, the household accounts, were kept in good order. She would also act as sort of head of household when the family were away. So when the family was, say, off in a London residence, the housekeeper would stay at their country house with a skeleton staff. And she would be responsible there for just maintaining the house, making sure it was kept secure and that the basic maintenance was kept in order so that the house was ready for the family when they returned and and could be prepared in advance of their return. So a very important role. And also, if somebody came to visit while the family was away, the housekeeper would show them round. So the housekeeper would give a guided tour of the house and gardens to visitors as well. The housekeeper as well. How did their salary compare with that of a governess or a cook? Well, we know that governesses were fairly well paid because, as was said earlier, they're often quite high-born or quite high status. Um, they could maybe receive around 60 or 70, 80 pounds a year, maybe. For a housekeeper, if you go back to the 18th century, they could expect to be paid around 15 pounds, which is high for servants at the time. But if you move up to the sort of mid to late 19th century, we're talking more around 50 pounds. So on a par with what a female cook would be getting, but much less than a butler or a male chef. So you're still seeing that hierarchy of salary based on gender. Are there any noted records of housekeepers at English heritage sites particularly? Well, one housekeeper we know quite a lot about is Hannah Mackenzie, who was the housekeeper at Rest Park. And this is in the early Edwardian period, so moving a little bit beyond the Victorian period. And she had been recruited as housekeeper by the American ambassador, Whitelaw Reed, who was renting Rest Park as a country retreat in the early 20th century, in sort of 1906 to 12. And when Reed actually died in 1912, Hannah was kept on by Rest's owner because Reed had only been renting Rest Park, but Rest's owner, who was Oberon Herbert Baron Lucas, he kept Hannah Mackenzie on as part of the skeleton staff that were maintaining the house. And he used to just visit for occasional sort of weekend visits with his sister and their social circle, and Hannah was sort of effectively running the household. And then when war broke out in 1914, Rest was offered up as a military hospital, and Hannah Mackenzie was again kept on, this time to sort of manage the domestic arrangements of a major hospital of an auxiliary hospital so she was now managing not a skeleton staff but you know a staff of about 30 or 40 and plus 20 nurses plus 
having to cater for up to 200 convalescing soldiers as well. So a major step up in what she was having to deal with. And in fact, Nan Herbert, who is the sister of, of Lord Lucas, described Hannah as young, highly intelligent and very hardworking. And it seems that she'll be an ideal person to run the domestic side of a private hospital. So he obviously, she obviously had a, a very high regard for her. So mm. she had a very important role to play in the, in the running of the hospital. Yes, and, and these country houses being turned over to effectively field hospitals, but albeit on the home front, so to speak, did change the role of women considerably during that period. They weren't just uh, looking after the nobles, they were looking after ordinary men. They were indeed. I mean, what you see is that during the First World War, where a lot of the men went off to fight, and so women had to step into many jobs and professions that had hitherto been the preserve of men. So you find women working in factories, women working in the field, tilling the ground, and also taking on lots of sort of traditionally male roles within households as well. And this must have given women greater confidence that they could do these jobs just as well as men, and, you know, can be seen as the sort of very first steps along the road towards greater gender equality in terms of just giving the fact that women can do this work just as well as men, and and that the reasons that have previously been used for limiting them to certain aspects of the workforce and paying them less can no longer be so easily justified. Mm. Obviously, uh, the 20th century did have two world wars. We're into the 1930s and 40s now. Did any of the grand houses that English Heritage cares for still employ a large number of household staff during the interwar years of the 30s and 40s? Well, during the interwar years, it's really interesting because some academics have sort of surmised that domestic service declined in importance during this interwar period. The idea being that just because of the war and because of women going into factory work and other work, but they weren't willing to go back to the sort of more servile work in domestic service. But if you actually look at the statistics and you look at the, say, the 1921 census, that shows still 1.1 million women listed as domestic servants. And if you go up to the 1930s, 1931 census, that's up to 1.3 million. So that isn't really a suggestion of major decline. But at the same time, if you look at what's happening to country houses, you can see that there's been a precipitate decline in the country house during the interwar years. And this is a combination of falling incomes for the aristocracy, but also very severely rising taxes, particularly death duties, that meant that many aristocrats were forced to sort of abandon their country piles and move into more modest residences. And so a substantial number of country houses were demolished in this period. And those that survived would have had a reduced workforce because they the families were on a reduced means. You find places like Brodsworth were, were sort of keeping going but with a much reduced workforce. But there are a few that buck the trend and that's where you've got the nouveau riche industrialists, bankers, entrepreneurs. They see an opportunity to get themselves a, a country estate mm. and they snap up a lot of these country piles and, and obviously they have the wealth to be able to bring in a, a, a substantial retinue of servants. And Elton Palace in London I believe is one of those great examples of the nouveau riche using servants exactly yeah i mean it's a it's a copybook example here you have stephen and virginia courtauld immensely wealthy from the the share of the courtauld textile empire which they have and they're able to lease elton palace and rebuild the house as this sort of art deco palace the epitome of 1930s luxury and of course employ a, a decent body of servants to maintain them in that house yes absolutely do we know much about those servants? Well, we know from 
the uh, electoral roll in 1937 that there's 11 living in servants and six of those are women and the rest of them are, so the other five are men and we also know there were other servants from various oral history recordings who lived locally but came in on a daily basis so sort of coming in as cleaners or housemaids who didn't actually live within the house but even within the house that's there we know a little bit about some of the uh, some of the workers there for instance we know that the long-suffering cook Emma Truckle she had to suffer from Virginia Courtauld. Used to, she had very high standards over her food, and she used to keep a little silver pencil and notepad at her side at the table, where she could write down any comments about the food, anything she didn't like about the food, to pass back to the cook. <laughs> uh, so, it's, nevertheless, she seems to have been very well liked. And recently, uh, a member of her family, a descendant, came forward to us with a, a really interesting spoof certificate. It was a sort of decorated certificate with effectively an award to Emma Truckle, awarding her the most honourable and worshipful and gluttonous order of the Chapeau de Syrup, a premier right. class. And, okay. and you get this idea of her being awarded this, uh, of her being really held in quite high esteem as providing the, the food for them, particularly during World War Two, when there were obviously shortages and rationing, and somehow Emma was able to rustle up fantastic food for the Courtauld's table during the war. I gather the palace also had a female gardener which was quite unusual. Yes, we have Christine Falwasser. She was deputy head gardener during the war when most of the male gardeners had to go off to fight. And and she was one of the, amongst those new breed of sort of educated women gardeners. She'd trained at Kew Gardens and she'd been at Cambridge University before that. So she had a what you could describe as a solidly middle-class intellectual background. And she was seen as being very good company. The Courtaulds often invited her to sit at the dinner table with them and one of their family friends, a lady called Rosalie Doyle Davidson, in an oral history recording, says how she used to go down and seeing to see Christine Falwasser because she was very interesting. The, the education she had, she was a tiny person, very attractive. We used to have her to dinner sometimes, and the conversation would gradually warm up and be very interesting. And Stephen particularly liked addressing questions and topics to her. So you get this idea of her being treated almost, again, it's almost gone full circle. She's almost seen as part of the family rather than as a servant, very much as we were talking about in the earlier medieval household, how some of the household members were sort of well-born and uh, were, you know, sort of knights and mm. uh, their retainers rather than being from the lower classes. So it's moved full circle. And Christina Fawasso is someone who kept in touch with the Courtaulds even after she left their service. She moved up to Scotland with them when they moved to Scotland, serving as their gardener. But when they moved to southern Rhodesia, she stayed in Scotland, but then she goes to visit them in Africa. And we actually have... In the Courtauld's house in Africa, at a place called La Rochelle in southern Rhodesia, uh, they had this sort of window in their house where all visitors would inscribe their signatures with a diamond stylus. And there on the window, amongst all the lords and ladies and the various other high and mighty and the celebs of the day who were signing their names, is the name of Christine Falwasser on the window. Hmm. So we know that she was there in 1958. And that's uh, Rhodesia modern day Zimbabwe, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. yes. Wow, that's really fascinating. So in closing then, Megan and Andrew, we've traced the stories of women working in domestic service for the upper classes over about 700 years there. But what do the records of female workers at English heritage sites tell us about how things have changed over that period? Well, I think in tracing this history, we can see that the types of roles that women undertook um, in domestic service over this period of time certainly changed and that they took on increasingly senior roles, important roles within the household. 
and that they became a really integral part of that, parts of the families, parts of a sort of professional service of working women. And as in some of the examples Andrew's given, really valuable and important members of those communities, which were essential to the functioning of these properties over time. I was going to say about the uh, records as well, because obviously the closer we are to the present, it seems like the records are better. They certainly are. I mean, I think that's something that particularly struck me is that when you're looking at the 19th and particularly the early 20th century, you have all sorts of records that you can't dream of having for earlier periods. You know, we have photographs of Christine Fowlasser. We have letters. We have the occasional journal. We have obviously Avis Crocombe's cookery book documents that we just don't have for some of those earlier periods and it partly reflects the fact that as Megan was saying that we got a more professionalized workforce where these people are more educated they can read and write they are higher in status in many ways and therefore they leave more of a a written record but I think it's also just a, a consequence of the fact that we just have a better archival record for later periods in general there are more varieties of different sources I mean we have obviously oral history is something that is only really available for the 20th century so you can really get a sense of what people were really like in a way that for earlier periods it's much more tricky. Is it fair to say that the lives of these people who worked at English heritage sites in the past are just as fascinating as those of the wealthy employers who mostly get top billing? I think absolutely and I think to ignore the stories of what were a huge part of these households at the time would be incredible you know they had these fascinating lives they had their own agency they played these key roles and you know that particularly for the biographies of those later women that we can see you can really build a fascinating picture of their experiences and what life would have been like and again for the earlier women even though we might not necessarily even know their names sometimes we can stipulate what they may have done in the past and you know for so many of us we may not have been in that sort of top echelon of society if we threw ourselves back you know 100 200 300 years so these women really are fascinating in their own right and I think as well that when you're visiting one of these sites Actually, if you just sort of find yourself a quiet spot in, say, the kitchen or something, you just close your eyes, you can just sort of imagine the cooking going on, the rushing around, the footman grabbing a plate and then going from one place to another. I think when you're at a property like that, you can sort of think, actually, no, I'm surrounded by sort of murmurs of history here. It's not really that quiet at all. There's, there's lots that went on. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's much easier, I guess, for a lot of our visitors to relate to people in service who are more likely to be their ancestors than the great and the good. And you do get a sense of in their stories, could be the stories of any one of us if we were to do our own family history. And, and, you know, you see these people who have very varied lives. We're just taking a glimpse of them when they were working or related to one of our properties. But what happened to them afterwards? Where do they come from? What's their family backgrounds? And and they're, and they're so varied. You know, there's so many different stories out there. And, and each one of them is just as interesting as the last. And we can get a sense of them as a sort of community of people brought together at that one point in time in that particular place. And, you know, you can start to try and visualise in your mind how they would have related to each other, how they would have interacted. I know this is something that the live interpreters at Audley End tried to do to sort of think you know what would their personalities have been like how would they have related to each other at that moment in time it's a fascinating thought I love that the mystery of history in some sense 
So what does this whole exercise of tracing the history of women in work in the domestic sphere teach us about how valuable it has been over the centuries? It was tremendously important, really. Yeah, well, I think it's safe to say from what we've discussed that it really, really was. And from the really um, important organisation and administrative roles to the teaching roles, down to the lower roles in services of chambermaids or scullery maids, it was all really, really important work and a vital part of the labour force at the time and of the working of these country houses. And I think we can reflect on perhaps the value that we place on this historically when we're looking at these stories of these sites. They're really important to be foregrounded in the same way as the stories of anyone else who lived there or who served there or who visited there. So really important to remember these stories as a really vital component of the running of these homes in the past. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to reveal the results of a five-year archaeological research project at Tintagel Castle in Cornwall. We're looking both at Latin plus the native language on this one inscription. Thanks for listening. See you next time.